I still watch Love Boat. What's wrong with it? Yeah. I like it. Nothing. <laughs> well, there's probably a lot wrong with it, but that's we're all to blame for watching it. <laughs> all right, let's pray. In the, name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who loveth mankind, the true light of the divine knowledge, and open the eyes of our minds to understand the gospel teachings. Implant in us also the fear of the blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as well pleasing it to be. Without the illumination of our souls and bodies of Christ our God, to you our glory. Together with thy Father, with everlasting, then all holy, good and life giving spirit, now and ever to the ages of ages. Amen. So, I think I promised you we'd go back and I would tell you a little bit about the foundation of the city, at least according to Andrew of Caesarea, who's one of our prolific early commentators. Now, let me. Dig back to see where it starts. Remember, there were 12 foundations, Jasper, Sapphire, Agate. It's sometime after, it's it's right around um, verse 11. There we go. All right, and I'm just going to go really quickly through these. We could spend all kind of time, but just to give you one perspective on all of these. Um, the radiance of the church is Christ, who here is depicted as a jasper and clear as crystal to indicate he is unfading and life-giving and pure. That's the jasper. It is likely that though that through the jasper, which has the color green like the emerald, the chief apostle Peter is indicated. For he bore the death of Christ in the body, and in his love for Christ made known that which is everlasting and always new, guiding us to green pastures through the warmth of his faith. The sapphire stone is like a heavenly body from which the color azure comes and symbolizes the blessed Paul. For he was caught up into the third heaven and drew those that were persuaded by him. And there in the heavens, he has his citizenship. Um, the third, which he says is Chalcedony. Is that right? I think so. Let's see. My Bible says the third is Agate. All right, let's see. Yeah, here they translate whatever Chalcedony is. This, this stone was not born in the breastplate of the high priest, rather anthracite, which does not appear here. We are then of the opinion that at that time, the saint called anthracite by another name. 
The anthracite indicates the blessed apostle Andrew, who, like coal, was ignited by the spirit. Uh, the emerald is green in color, and when rubbed with oil, it receives a brilliant shine and beauty. We believe this stone indicates the proclamation of the evangelist John, by which divine oil makes bright the sorrow that has come to us through sins, and by the most precious gift of, the, of theology, grants to faith that which is everlasting. Uh, let's see. Then he's on... Onyx. Yeah, he says sardonic, but onyx. This stone, which has the color of a shining human fingernail, symbolizes the person of James. For before the others, he received the bodily death of martyrdom for the sake of Christ, which the nail characterizes. For when cut, it experiences no feelings. And I can't tell you what these mean, but <laughs> I'm just going to read them for you. Uh, the sixth is carnelian, or sardonian, he says. It has a shiny red color, possesses therapeutic power for swellings and wounds from iron. For this reason, I believe that this stone represents the beauty of the virtue of Philip. For by the fire of the divine spirit, he makes this makes bright and heals the spiritual wounds of those who are deceived, when, which they receive from the attacks of the devil. Pardon me, Father. Yeah. I... I I thought that the fourth one was the emerald, and that was John. And the oh, excuse me, I, I moved ahead. The the um, Chalcedony is James, correct? Um, the one just before that. Andrew. You said Chalcedony is Andrew, who okay. like Paul was a devil um, spirit. That's the third. The fourth is emerald. That's John. Mm-hmm. And this is all, I'm just reading you one. There's a, there's several of these, but I'm going to read you the primary one, which is Andrew Caesarea. There are others. The fifth, he says, is James. Uh-huh. The sixth is uh, Philip. Yeah, okay. Okay. The seventh, um, chrysolite. He says, chrysolite glitters like gold and perhaps symbolizes Bartholomew. For he was made glorious by his precious, precious virtues and by his divine preaching. So, all uh, analogy that these walls were built up by the saints, not by rocks. Well, this is the foundation. So we had the walls different, but this is the foundation, which uh, I think it said in the text was the twelve apostles. They fathered. Right. Um, the symbolism wasn't built by the the saints. It was this. Um, the symbolism was attached afterward, right? Yeah, I think uh, all the text says is that the twelve foundations of the walls are the apostles. Let me go back and look. Well, that would be like being assigned the four gospel, the symbols of the four gospel writers. Right. That's kind That's of what those, 14, these different. Yeah, verse 14. The wall of the city has 12 foundations, and on them the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. That's all it says. The rest of this now, we're going to hear, we're hearing Andrew's. There are a few other versions of it, but this is Andrew of Caesarea's of trying to determine, again, not from the text, but just from the, the, sim, the symbol of the colors, mainly. That's what he's focusing on. Um, and which apostles these might represent but if i read you the others you're going to realize that every one of them has a different apostle 
Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. is one person's person's version of what these may refer to. What we right. do know, and this is a good point to make the, the make the point, good time to make the point. We do know that it's representative of the apostles and all that is with an apostleship. That's the key part. Remember how we talked about, you know, when you have the things that you don't know, try to connect what you do know. And in that overlap is sort of what we know. So we don't know really which one refers to which apostle, or even I would say, even if each one refers to an apostle, but together, think of this as a foundation. All 12 together are the foundation. That we know, because you can't right. for 12 foundations. That doesn't work. A house or whatever building, it has a foundation. This is saying there's 12 names on that foundation. And we're hearing Andrew's interpretation of what those 12 may refer to. Which, by the way, uh, I always make this point in the Intro to Orthodoxy class. The foundation of Orthodoxy uh, is the Apostles. When we say in the Creed, I believe in one holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, that Apostolic has really two meanings. One is that the Church is Apostolic in this sense, that the foundation of the Church is the teaching of the Twelve Apostles. And why is that significant? They were the recipients of the teaching of Christ. And we really have no access to the teachings of Christ outside of the apostles slash the evangelists. You know, a few of the evangelists, namely Mark and Luke, were not among the 12. But they, they were apostles in the sense that they were um, sent out. So anyway, the apostolic foundation is the foundation of the church because they got their teaching from Christ. And that's different, by the way, than, than some of the Protestants look at it. They would say the church is built on Christ. We would agree. But we'd say it's built on the apostles who received directly the revelation from Christ. And we get that revelation from Christ through them. And we're going to continue that idea of that even though we got it through them, we didn't get it directly through them. We got it through them, and then the bishops that they appointed to succeed them in the cities where they established churches, and then the bishops that succeeded those bishops, which comes down to the present day. We call that the apostolic succession. I know in, in the Catholic Church and in, to some degree, the Anglican churches, they understood it a little bit differently, somewhat, in that it's, it's the line of the apostolic succession. In other words, it's the line that you draw from the bishop or from the apostle to the bishop to the succeeding bishop. For us, we do agree with that, but we say it's not the fact that one uh, established the next. It's the faith that they transmitted one to the next. That's for us the apostolic succession. The, the fact that we look at our patriarch of Antioch as the successor to the apostles Peter and Paul is not just because you can trace back the names. It's that the faith that Patriarch John now teaches is the same faith that Patriarch Ignatius IV taught all the way back to Saints Peter and Paul. That's for us the, the, the key part of apostolic succession. Any questions on that? 
No, but might you um, could just give us the names in a row from eight down? We've been you've gone through the names um, of the rocks, the stones. To go back or to keep going? To keep going from oh, yeah, barrel yeah. number eight Absolutely. down. Okay, so the eighth is barrel. This stone barrel has the color of the sea and of the air and is close to that of the hyacinth. Barrel very likely represents Thomas, for he was sent on journeys far beyond the sea, even to India for their salvation. So the eighth is barrel, which you, Andrew is saying is Thomas. Uh, the ninth is topaz. I mean, the, of the topaz, which is deep red and like charcoal, and which, as they say, sends forth a milk-like juice that relieves the pain of those suffering from eye disease, it is possible the soul of Matthew is indicated. For he was inflamed by divine zeal and was adorned by the pouring out of his own blood for the sake of Christ. Through the gospel, he also healed those who are blind in their hearts and gave milk to drink for those newly born in the faith. Andrew, the ninth, Topaz. Oh, I thought you said it was Matthew. I'm oh, sorry, did I say Matthew? Did I say Andrew? Matthew, sorry. I was looking at Andrew and Caesar yet. Matthew. <laughs> sorry. Uh, the tenth, uh, which it says here is chrysophase. What is the text called, the tenth? In my Bible, it's chrysophase. Is it? Okay. Chrysasperus. Yeah, which I'd never heard of before. Chrysophrase is deeper in color than gold itself, and although I think that Thaddeus is indicated, oh, and through it, I think that Thaddeus is indicated. For to Abgar, Abgar, king of Edessa, he proclaimed the kingdom of Christ, which is signified by gold, and his death, which is indicated by ashes. That's Thaddeus. Uh, the 11th is hyacinth. It seems likely that the hyacinth, which is deep blue, that is like the sky, symbolizes Simon. For he was zealous for the gifts of Christ and possessed a heavenly wisdom. The 12th is amethyst. It seems to me that through the amethyst, which is somewhat like fire in appearance, Matthias is indicated. He was accounted worthy of the divine fire at the distribution of the tongues, and he filled the place of him who had fallen away. For by a fiery desire, he wished to please him who elected him. What is 11? 11 was Hyacinth, which he said was Simon. Simon oh. Zealot. Simon. Yeah, I never knew that was spelled with a J. It's J-A-C, I think, in, in my yeah. Bible. My Bible, too. I just didn't know it was Hyacinth was spelled with a J. Well, in, my, well, in this one, it's, it's an H. I don't know what the text says, but... Um, in the commentaries, they call it hyacinth. What do they call it in the text? J-A-C-I-N-T-H. Yeah. Interesting. And I wasn't familiar with pretty much any of these. <laughs> I'm not much into gems and minerals. Father, if you would forgive me, I never got, I never got the first one down for, for Jasper. Uh, let's see. Let me go back. Not a problem. Um, Christ. Oh. Andrew says the jasper has the color green like the emerald. The chief apostle Peter has indicated. Thank you.
Good try, Randy. Now, what's key about this is what he says every time. The only thing that is common to all of his descriptions, he says, it seems to me. And I don't want to emphasize that idea. There's nothing in the text that tells you which to refer to, or in fact, if they refer to anyone in particular. And this is really important when we study the Bible. Whenever it doesn't say, and I try to be really deliberate about this, it's okay to say, it seems this. What we, could, what we should never say is, it is this, unless it says it is this. Now, does it really make a difference which apostle and which quality of the color of these stones refers to? No, I don't think it really it does. doesn't change the meaning of the text. No. Okay. It's just somebody's there. opinion. What's that? It's just different opinions from different scholars. Exactly. And it, as a general rule of Bible study, it's really good to understand that when it's not clearly delineated, it's not key. Anything the scripture wants us to understand, it's going to lay out really clearly. And so sometimes we get discouraged from reading the Bible. Well, I don't really understand it. Okay. You may not understand a lot of it. Some of it you will. And the part that you will, that's clear in the text, that's what you need to know. We shouldn't be intimidated from reading the Bible because we may not understand it. That's okay. It, it's the fact that we've had the Bible now for 2,000 years, Old and New Testament, Old Testament even longer, and we're still gaining new meaning out of it, shows you how scripture works. It's always giving. I had uh, one of the kids, I was blessing a house yesterday, and this is something I love to do. You know, the parents say, do you have any questions for father? Father doesn't get to come to your house. Typically, it's the only time that the priest comes to your house, unless, God forbid, there's a tragedy or some kind of celebration. So the question was, how does God speak to us? Or how do we, I'm sorry, how do we hear God's voice? That was the question. Because, you, you know, here's a child who hears, you know, listen to God. God will speak to you. God will tell you, things like that. But kids think in very concrete words and ideas. So the question was, how do I hear? What do you think my number one answer was? You have to listen. Prayer. What was that, oh. Alan? Prayer? No. That was number two. I said you have to listen. Two. Oh. The Bible. There we go. There was a blip. Listen to what? The Bible. Because here we are in Bible study. Why? We want to hear what God has to say. And what God is saying that he wants us to know, he's going to say very clearly. Right? The reason why this book is so misunderstood is the things that aren't clear, people have attempted to provide clarity. And they go, oh, this means that, and this means that. And they totally muck up the meaning of the book. Right? We may not know when things happen, who's the Antichrist, what does the number mean. We can say it seems like this. And when you add up all those seems like, the meaning of the book is crystal clear. I, I hope nobody is leaving this without 
if somebody says, what's Revelation about? You should say it's about not being deceived because um, there's going to be times when it looks like evil is more powerful, but don't be deceived because God's going to win in the end. <clears throat> Something to that effect. And how did I know that? We read the text together. Yeah, we had some commentary along the way that helped us. But even if we had no commentary, if you just read the book and say, okay, what do we know based with no other background, no idea of historical context, nothing else, you would be able to get at that out of the book. Not as easily on this one. This one has a lot of symbolism that we might not know. Right. But if you didn't know it and we couldn't put an answer to any of it, would we have still gotten the same general message from the book? Probably. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think the common the common thought on Revelation is that it's about how the world is going to end. I mean, I think that's what people think it's about. Yeah. And then we we, we but, read here, and only in chapter twenty do we hear about. Actually, we never hear about the end of the world, do we? I like your I like your comment that said it's um, about God triumph over evil. I mean that's the basis of it, and now we've seen some of that. Right? Did the world end? Have we read about the end of the world in the Book of Revelation? No. No. So we've heard about judgment. We've heard about a renewal that there's a new earth and and a new heaven. The old has passed away, but even that doesn't tell us it ends. What it was ends, in the way it was, it ends. There's a complete renewal of it. But um, is it absolutely like there's no trace and this is something else? Newness doesn't give you that clarity, right? Um, if I say, well, you know, I, I've got this new thing. Is it new to me? Is it created from nothingness? If I tell you I bought a new car, well, all that means is I bought a car that no one has owned yet, right? Is the stuff in the car new? None of it. Not one molecule in that new car is new in the sense of not existing before. So newness doesn't imply that it's a complete start from scratch. If we say, oh, happy new year, all right? The last year ended, but it wasn't as, what ended? Our marking on a calendar ended. Life didn't end, the world didn't end, but we all have a chance of a, a renewal because we flipped the calendar. So all that to say that, like you said, Alan, people have an impression that it's about the end of the world. We never heard about the world ending. The world being renewed, absolutely. And we're about to hear how this new reality is so different from the old. But you can't say that the old ended. It wasn't destroyed into nothingness and then something new began. All we know is it's renewed. Whatever renewed happens to me, it's renewed. So even that basic idea, if you if maybe all of us before we read it this time, what's the book about? About the end of the world. And here we are at the end of the book and we're not going to hear about the end of the world. And that's where our misconceptions happen is 
we sometimes bring understandings that aren't in the book. You know, people have the, the impression that it's a scary book. Well, there are scary parts, but we're here at the ending and there's nothing scary about it. Quite the opposite. Yeah, so I just, I want you all, as we, as we finish this particular study, I want you all encouraged to keep reading the Bible, whether in study with a group like this or on your own, because again, everything you need to know is right there in the text. You don't need footnotes. You don't need commentaries. Those things can help. I'm not speaking against them in general. I'm just saying, even if you had none of those, you could understand what you need to understand by reading the Bible. All right. So I believe that was going back. Look at the last section. I believe we're now. Any questions before we move on past that? Nope. I believe we're in chapter 22. Is that correct? Yep. yep. The last chapter, eh? <laughs> the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. Now, before we read this, uh, we made this point earlier on. What's the function of an ending? What does an ending of a story do that no other part of the story does? To tell you what, to tell you what you heard and and wrap it all up. So yeah. it, bring, it wraps it up. Good. Bring it all together. Bring it all together. Good. Brandy, did you say something? I think what you said last time we met was that it sort of has a moral or a lesson. Yeah. And, and, the, and not only is it a moral lesson, but something you take with you. Okay. So in other words, when you think of a, of a story, and, and actually movies, you'll understand this really well. When you think of a movie, all right, let, let's, let's think of a movie. Um, it's A Wonderful Life. A lot of us watched Wonderful Life in the last two months. When you think of that movie, what's your impression of it? What's, what does it leave you with? What do you take from it? That there's good in people. Yeah. And okay. It will work out for the better. Okay. And where do you see that in the movie? Where is that in the story? Um, in Jimmy Stewart's actions and his redemption for letting his brother be deaf or whatever happened, I forgot. So Dying. all that feeds into it, right? But the part you're right. referring to. Oh, that looks really good. At the end. It's at the end. When they all come, when the neighbors and the family and the relatives all come and help his character. So in other words, you're left with, when you say what's, what's the movie about, when you said it, Randy, you summed up beautifully. It's the, it's the meaning, the moral, but it's also referring to where the story leaves off. You don't say, oh, it's a wonderful life. It's such a depressing movie because he thinks about jumping off the bridge. Yeah, that's part of the story. It's an important part of the story. But it, this story, and this is all story in general, it doesn't leave you with the middle. Right. The middle is important. The beginning is important. Story always leaves you with the ending. Okay? And this is how story works in any form. It could be a book, could be a poem, could be a movie. So in other words, when we read this last chapter now, the last book of the last of the Bible, this is what 
the author, and we're going to say the author in the big sense, capital A, of the Bible is, is God. This is what he wants to leave us with as we go forward. Now, when you go back and watch a movie again, all right, some people like to do that to move on to. I like to do that. I, but if there's a movie I like, I'll watch it over and over and over again. Even though I know where it's going to end, it's still a pleasant experience to watch it again. But I watch it differently because I know the ending. And sometimes that makes the difficult parts, I see it differently because I know how it's going to end up. And I read and I watch those parts differently because I know the ending. That's why somebody says, don't ruin it for me, right? Don't tell me the ending. I want to go through that process. So all that to say that when you have an ending, this is what we're going to be, hopefully, we should be left with as we close the book and either stop reading it and it goes with us like a good story sticks with you you think about it for a while you see a good movie you keep reflecting on it over a couple of days typically this is what the text of not only his book but the bible this is what the author is saying go away with and when you open it again know that whatever you read don't you're not going to forget this is the end oh Questions or comments on that? All right. Would somebody read for us in chapter 22, verses 1 through 5? I can, Father. Thank you. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, checking on a word here. They shall serve him. Were you reading at the end of uh, verse three? Yeah. Well, I'm looking for that word serve because my translation says they shall worship him. Oh, mine says mine shall too. serve him. Okay. The Greek <clears throat> is latrevrisin, which is, I think, and I have to go back and research this to see. Um, I think it's from the same root as liturgia or liturgy. You know, when the Bible says work and worship in an English translation, you know, we Orthodox, we have the verb, the, the, the noun, the liturgy, and we have the verb to liturgize. And in that one word, we have this idea of serving God, of worshiping him. We serve him together. And this was a very specific meaning um, in, in the time it was written. A, a liturgy was a common work. And an example in the ancient world, when it was time to dig a sewer trench, 
everybody came together to do it. It wasn't like you had the Department of Public Works, right? Think of me that term, the Department of Public Works. It's the works that are for everyone. And when you did that kind of a thing, everyone had a part. Okay, so a liturgy was a common act, a, a work of the people. That's the, lit the literal translation of the liturgy, it's the work of the people. So when they serve him, they're worshiping him, they're serving him, they're liturgizing, they're doing this common work that involve all of us together. And I wanted to make sure you understand that, see the connection there with, with what we know, the, the, the divine liturgy. This is the common work of the people that is at the same time divine, a part of God's action. All right, so let's go back and look at this a little more carefully through the whole thing. Um, then he showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal. Mine says, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Did your translation, Subdeacon, say pure water? Uh, no, Father. Mine, I'm reading from the, uh, from the Orthodox, whoops, Orthodox Study Bible. And uh, it just says, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God. Okay. A pure river of water. That's what I, I thought the word pure was in there. And I'm looking for, uh, looking to see in my Greek, I don't see the pure there. Um, yesterday, I'm looking I up in another version here. Purity. Is that your question? No. Um, and this idea of purity, not just about a, a level of cleanliness but that there's a singleness to it. There's a wholeness to it. There's nothing else in it. It's not the idea of, of how dirty it is. It's the fact that there's, it's all one thing. Pure gold is all gold. It's not gold mixed with other metals. Um, but here you have this idea of a river, a pure river, a pure water, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. What, what is water in, in our understanding of the world what what function does water how do we use water as a solvent it's like life cleanse yeah lots yeah. of things yeah so it, it's a source of life in all kinds of ways one is that we need to drink but they you know now science understands the, the scripture writers didn't but science understands that most of what we are is water yeah, like 90%. You remember that episode of the original Star Trek when, I don't know if it was a disease or something, but something came along and would take the water out and all you'd see is this little pile of dust on the ground. Because so much of what we are is water. So yeah, water is life. We need it. It's cleansing. It's healing. And this water comes from where? <clears throat> from the giver of life. From, yeah, from and in the text, God, what does it say? In the Holy Spirit. The throne of God. The throne. The throne, the throne of God. From the throne of God. Of the Lamb. Now. The Lamb. Here's, here's the interesting part. How many thrones has Revelation told us there are in heaven? Wasn't there like seven? Sort of a trick question. Twelve. 
So we know I mean, that they refer to a lot of different of the 24 elders. And we know that they surround the throne, singular. In other words, Revelation is not going to solve for us. It's not going to give us the ability to picture with our eyes or, our, or the eyes or mind one throne or two. Okay? If I say flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, can I picture two thrones? No. No, well, I, I picture one. Okay. Yeah. It only says one, and yet there are two on it. So Revelation so is not old. going to solve for us in a human understanding way the mystery of the Holy Trinity. Or in this case, the relationship of the Lamb of God. What we do know is that they share a throne. In other words, the Lamb has equal standing, uh, equal authority, and a unity with God that doesn't even allow him to be seated at another throne. That's the degree to which they are united. Now you might say, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Um, in, in At the time that the scriptures were being written, the articulation of the role of the Spirit was not at the level that we would now understand it in pure Trinitarian, you know, later on, we're going to have long treatises on the Trinity. What the scripture tells you is there is God, the father, there is the son who is the lamb. There is the Holy spirit. They don't tell you clearly. They don't articulate clearly how those interact. And so you'll have texts in, in the epistles of St. Paul, which refer to the spirit in one place, refers to the spirit of Christ in another, the spirit of the Father, and you don't get the clarity of later articulation. But we would not say that the Holy Spirit doesn't exist in the, in the scripture. He absolutely exists. He's just not articulated in the same way he will be later on. If you go back to chapters 1 and 2, even you know there, St. John has revealed that the, the, that the Spirit of God is there. He doesn't operate in the same way necessarily as God or the Lamb. All right, so this winter, the, the river of water of life flowing from the throne. And on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. Where have we heard of the tree of life before? In the Garden of Eden. So you have to go back to chapter one, I believe, of Genesis. Anyway, Bible is written in chapters. You go back to the very first part of the Bible. Not just the first part of Revelation, not just the first part of the Testament. You're now seeing a connection, as all good stories do. They're going to tie up the beginning, the ending, with the beginning. So now we're being drawn back to a vision of the tree of life. How can it be on both sides of the river? Uh, let's see. Yeah, good question. On either side of the river is the That's a good question. I don't know. There's a commentary I'll, I'll get to a little bit. Because um, a river runs through it. <laughs> in a sense. 
and, and it's it. And, and you know, this is kind of true. If you look at trees, you know, as kids draw trees, there's one branch, right? One trunk that comes up. But when you see trees in, in the wild, especially trees around a river, what do you notice about trees around a river? They're falling. <laughs> them, yeah. They're falling into the river. Yeah, the ones that are still alive. What you'll notice is because it's at the river's edge and because you're seeing into the root system, sometimes you're going to see that that root system, you, you get to see the root system, I guess. Normally with a tree, we don't see the root system. Once in a while, one will surface up in your yard somewhere you don't want it. And you notice it there. But along the river, now you're seeing below the surface of the ground. And what you're seeing is this tree is not right at this spot. This tree is all over this area. So what it means, Randy, I really don't know. But yeah. it is with, with real trees that you get to see around the river, this is not all that unusual. If any of you kayak, watch the trees that are not fallen yet, and you'll know what I'm talking about. Yeah, but I still don't, in spite of what you said, it can't be on both sides of the river. If there's a river, how can it, I don't know. It's a big tree. <laughs> on either side of the river is the tree of life. Okay. Um, let me see if I can find something on that. I'm looking down in the footnotes in this Bible. And <laughs> Unless the tree is in the river. Yeah. Um, let's see. Does it say anything about it in the bottom of an Orthodox study Bible? In the footnotes there? I don't have an Orthodox with me. Here's, here's one interesting interpretation. Um, we may also interpret this passage concerning the river of the water of life to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself the fountain of life. For, of, for we read of him, with you as the fountain of life, in your light we shall see light. And then it goes on to say that, that he's also the tree. In other words, this interpretation is the tree and the river are both right. Okay. I wonder why they even differentiate them. Well, again, there's what we can speculate and say it seems like, and there's what we know. What we know right. of is the tree of life was in paradise. Right. And now, where are we? Back in paradise. We're back in paradise. How do we know that? The tree of life. Yeah. Right? Trees in the ancient well, that and evil has been trees marked places, right? Um, what was the oh, remember Shawshank Redemption? Shawshank, where does, where yeah. does Andy tell Red to find what he's left for him? Tells him to go to a certain place. Look, I for thought it was like on a roof, but I don't remember. It was, it was underneath a big tree in the middle of a cornfield beside a fence, a stone right. fence. Okay. So distinctive trees are often landmarks. You know, we have, we can mass move signs these days. We just put a sign up. Yep. In the early days in the ancient world, trees were often landmarks. They were often uh, maybe points of division of property. This side of the tree is this, this side. Of the, and even now you see we plant, we plant trees 
as a, a way to mark property. So, but, and all that again is speculation. What we do know is we know where we are. We're in paradise. How do we know? There's the tree of life. The tree of life, not a tree of life, not a tree of a life, right? The tree of life, very specific, which we heard about back in Genesis. It's 12 kind of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Which goes into the next verse. You know, I say, why is why we need healing? There shall be no more anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb, there it is again, shall be in it. And his servants shall worship him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their forehead. In other words, what do we know? We know that nothing, to use this translation, a curse, nothing evil, nothing sinful, nothing corrupt, <clears throat> nothing is in that place anymore. In my translation, it says the fruits and leaves of the tree are completely uh, re therapeutic and reversing the effects of the fruit in the beginning so that it's um it's counteracting the tree of, of of being disobedient right apple yeah which is interesting um the the early commentators um when you look at how orthodox understand the meaning of the story of eden and adam and eve um in in the western view adam and eve sinned because they broke the one rule which was don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm -hmm. And so they were banished from the garden as a punishment. In the Eastern view, God in his love for us banishes us from the garden once we've tasted the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, now we know evil. We know both. He banishes us from the garden for one reason. In the garden is what other tree? Tree of life. Tree of life. Okay. And so the commentators are in agreement when they talk about in his love for us, God said he didn't want us eternally to eat from both the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, because that would have made permanent our experience of evil and its results. So in his love for us, he kicks us out of the garden until we can rid ourselves of the evil or he can help rid us of, of the evil now what are we doing now we're eating of the tree of life because we're going to go can, uh, eternally in a life that has nothing accursed how do your translations uh, translate the beginning of verse three nothing accursed will be found there anymore all of them say accursed Mine does. Yeah, the study Bible, the Orthodox study Bible says, and there shall be no more curse. Okay. And, and you know, that idea of a curse, again, you can kind of see how two different theological ideas developed of a curse. One version is somebody does something bad against somebody, and the person, if they have the power, curses them. Like, I'm going to put a hex on you. I'm going to punish you. The other idea of a curse is that we suffer the consequences of something. 
Like there's a is a natural consequence of, you know, if you eat poison, you get sick. And to go back specifically in the Garden of Eden, God said, if you uh, eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Right. But does that mean he would kill us if we did it? In other words, the threat of punishment for disobedience. Or is he saying, if you do that, it'll kill you. And he doesn't say either. Clearly, he says, if you eat it, you'll die. The East interpreted that as that's the natural consequence for sin. The West interpreted it more as, more most often, as punishment. That's where we get very different ideas about God and his judgment and what he, what he does to us. But again, such a beautiful text here. Nothing occurs. The throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it. His servants shall worship him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Where do we hear about names on foreheads before in Revelation? Mark, Mark of the beast. beast. Mark of the beast. So now we're seeing a redemption, and we're seeing that, and, and a name on the forehead was often a sign of servitude, of slave, slavehood. So we are marked with his name. We belong to him. That's the idea. And night shall be no more. They need no light of lamp or of sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they shall reign forever and ever. Beautiful. <laughs> Any questions on that section? Mm -hmm. All right, let's go on. Let's read. Um, let's do six through nine. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. For the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. See, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I go into like another subheading called Epilogue and Benediction at eight. That's you right. want me to read that anyhow? Yeah, eight and nine, please. Okay. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. He said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your comrades, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. If you remember, we heard that before. Remember that? This happened earlier in the book when John falls down before the feet of the angel. Tells him not to do that. Yeah, and now we're getting into what you might call the epilogue. It's like, okay, the story, if you, if you notice, none of this is story it's like commentary so the angel said these words are trustworthy and true the lord the god of the spirits of the prophets his angels will show servants must soon take place behold i'm coming soon blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophets of this book so this is sort of john wrapping up it's it's um it's not you know the, the story is sort of over right um mm -hmm. 
when we have that idea of go back. And night shall mean no more, they shall no, they shall need no night of lamp or of sun, for the Lord God will be their light, they shall reign forever. It's almost like the end. And now we're going to have a little bit of epilogue, a little bit of commentary. This idea of I am coming soon, and that this thing will soon take place. In two sentences, we have the word soon. What's the uh, what's the what's the meaning there? Be right. Yeah. What, I didn't what, hear what you said. There was a blip. I didn't hear what you said, Randy. Somebody be says ready. I can't. Frank, be ready. Can you hear me? Can anybody hear me? Be There's some be static. Ready. Yeah, turn turn your video off for a second, Randy. I think it's not a bandwidth there. Okay. Be ready or be prepared. Yeah, be ready or be prepared. You still not hearing me? Now we can, yeah. Yeah, okay. be ready, be prepared. And not just be prepared, be prepared because the time for preparation is ending. That's the idea of, of soon. When he's coming soon, you can prepare. If you're having people over for dinner, there's the preparation of going shopping on one end. There's a preparation of the doorbell being rung at the other end, all right? He's saying the time for preparation for this is ending. Now, what's also ending? If the time for preparation is ending, what's also ending? Our lives. So what, time, what, what has the book been referring to? The time the to judge. What was that, Deborah? The judgment. Well, the, the judgment comes at the end. The time to prepare for the for the for the final judgment. There's yeah, but what was the bulk, what was happening in the bulk of the book? Go back to think of the seven bowls and the seven seals and the what was happening through all that. Well, what was, was the Christian like for paying attention to all the signs? Yeah, and, and what I'm referring to specifically was the Christians were suffering. The they what? Were, they were suffering. So all that suffering that we heard about went on for chapter after chapter after chapter, all kinds of suffering. Uh, murder and, and, and torture and you can't buy and sell and allegiance to this one and that one, and the beast and the dragon, all of that stuff. If the time for preparation is ending, it's because this part of the story is coming soon. In other words, you're, you're, the end of your suffering is also coming soon, right? And the idea is, hold on, hold on a little bit longer, right? The cavalry's on the way. All this is going to end, all that, that yucky, difficult stuff. The end is going to come quickly. And so is, idea, is, that, is that suffering our earthly life? 
Yes, all the, the book is written to people in this world. Right yeah. Now. So whatever way we're suffering to be faithful, as the book has been telling us to, is stay on it, stay with the right side, because not only is the right side going to be victorious, now he's layering on top of that the idea of stay on the right side because it's almost over. Right? Hang in there. It's almost over. I'm coming soon. That's the idea. Okay. Um, can we stick on a little bit late? Mm -hmm. We've got two more quick sections to go through. Anybody have anywhere to go in the next five, 10 minutes? Nope. All right, let's, let's keep going here because we're really close to the end. Would somebody read for us 10 to 15? And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. See, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repeat repay according to everyone's work i am the alpha and the omega the first and the last the beginning and the end blessed are those who wash their robes so that they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city of the gates did you say 15 yeah okay oh i'm supposed to read 15 yeah 15 Mm -hmm. Okay, sorry. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and fornicators and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Okay. So, Let me say clearly, by the way, when it said outside of the dogs, he wasn't referring to our nice pets. You have to think of dogs in the Middle Eastern sense. You know, you still from people in the Middle East. We're, they think we're crazy for keeping our dogs in the house. Dogs are outside creatures. They're dirty. You keep them for protection. They're not the loving pets that we think of. That's why the dogs are outside. I'll make sure that was clear. Right? His buddy Hellhounds. <laughs> All right. So again, he's finishing this sort of epilogue. And the angel says, don't seal up the words of prophecy for the time is near. Again, this idea of there's no time. Don't hold on to this revelation because the time is near. What's this? It sounds kind of strange. Verse 11, let the evildoers still be evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still be right. What's that about? It's things we did unless you're a believer yeah it, it's not saying it doesn't matter what you do it's saying do what you want to do whatever you want to do you go ahead and do it because i am coming soon to bring recompense to everyone for what he has done that's what you want to choose to do keep doing it because i'm going to pay you back in other words if you are evil and filthy you're going to get paid back with evil and filth. You, you reap what you sow. What's that? 
You reap that, what you sow. Reap what you sow, exactly. What was that, Alan? Does that say to us, though, that um, every man according as his work shall be? Does that say to us that in addition to having faith and belief, we have to do the good works? We have to feed the hungry and be kind to people and love people and Absolutely. do all the things that we're supposed to do for him to Absolutely. judge us? Yep. Which is consistent with the entire Bible. You know, you, right. only, you only get a wrong idea of the Bible if you don't read it. If you read it, you hear that message from beginning to end. Now, you do hear the grace of God. And by the way, you don't hear it only in the New Testament. Again, if you think that's the case, you haven't read the Old Testament. Uh, the grace of God is, is there, but it's there in our attempt to serve him not in our attempt to decide we serve him sometimes and serve others other times. What do you tell us? You can't serve two masters. Right? And I preached, a, I don't know, a few weeks or a month ago, I mentioned the, the scripture that we hear at the funeral service when Jesus says, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. He doesn't say, oh, I'm going to pretend I didn't see that. Now, what did I say? The, the, uh, the exception was his confession. When we repent and we confess, that's gone. It's not that God says it doesn't matter. It's that he relieves us from the reality of that sin. In other words, he removes it. All right? Somebody who has had uh, a surgery and had a tumor removed, the tumor is gone. God removes our sin and the effect of our sin. And it's only when we go back to that same sin but again like i tell you all in confession you're not confessing the same thing again you're confessing doing something yes it's the same thing you've done before but it's now new it's a new one so again the idea is he is going to yes reward us with what we have done and then he repeats what he what we heard back in the last chapter i am the alpha and the omega the first and the last the beginning and the end He's the one by which we judge everything. You can't just look back and look at either your difficulties or your sins or your regrets or you look forward, you might look forward to your hopes and your fears. We should look back and look forward and you see him on both of us. Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life. They may enter the city by the gates. Now, he doesn't say what this means here, but we have this image given to us a few times in the book. What does it mean to wash the robes? What, and what are they washing their robes? In the blood of the lamb. Well, in the blood of the lamb or the blood Martyr. of their own blood. Yeah, martyrdom. In other words, we cleanse I... ourselves when we accept whatever consequence there is for our faithfulness and whatever suffering, when we accept that, which looks ugly, right? A blood stain is one of the hardest stains to remove if you ever can remove it. It looks dirty. It looks stained. But in Revelation, washing your robe with blood is how you clean it. That's how it becomes white like snow. So it's washed in blood. Does this refer to like confession and repentance too? Yes. Any kind of suffering for the faith. Okay. 
Yeah, and we verse, could all be uh, threatened with physical martyrdom, but we have martyrdom of all kinds, and and the martyrdom of turning away from temptation, or if we've given in temptation and turning away and repenting of the sin, that's all part of that same suffering for the faith, suffering for Christ. My verse 14 says, blessed are they that do his commandments, that, may that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter yeah. in through the gates into the city. Yeah, and mine has a footnote saying that other ancient authorities read, do his commandments instead of watch their robes. There's two threads of the, of the text. And again, think about this. When we have a, we can't solve that. We can't say it's this or it's that. It's either, both. What do we do with that? We combine them. We say, all right, what do they? What what's the overlap? If one says wash the robes, one says uh, do his commandments. It's where there's overlap that we can be sure it means this. In other words, how we suffer in doing his commandments, that's the part we know for sure, because that's that's the part that's in that overlap where. It's, and in, now those that wash their robes what does it mean they have the right to the tree of life they may enter the city by the gates so your choice here in verse 14 and 15 is you wash your robes you obey his commandments you notice it doesn't say who you declare your allegiance to it's what you do to underscore your point Alan Mm -hmm. um, and if you do that you're in the city with right to the tree of life if not where are you outside the dogs the sorcerers fornicators murdered by adulterers and everyone who loves and practices falsehood I will be preaching at some point soon that falsehood has always been one of our chief enemies. But what I see now, and I see from all sides of the political spectrum, is using falsehood as a tactic. And we're going to be tempted to enter into and accept falsehood as reality. And so we've got to all be careful of that right now. All right. Let's take it on home. Who wants to read for us verses 16 to 21? I can, Father. Thank you. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of the prophecy, this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. 
The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And that's where the Bible ends. My book says the end. <laughs> Does yours say the end? Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Amen. So be it. <laughs> no, and then it says at the bottom in the, the, the very bottom of all the text, the end. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Mine doesn't. So let me just cover a few things quickly here. Um, this is Jesus talking. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you. It's one of the few times that the figure we met back in the first part of the book, um, you know, he's not named. The lamb is not named. Now he's named. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you with this testimony for the churches. Testimony. Let me test my theory and see if my theory is right. Yes. I Jesus sent my angel to martyrise. Martyrise. What does that sound like? Martyrdom or martyrs. Martyrdom. Martyrdom. Witness. Testimony. All the same word. And so, in a sense, even the book is a testimony. It's a witness. It's a martyrdom. For what? For the churches. All right. Many interpreters of this book. Their first mistake in misunderstanding it is they forget it was addressed to churches. It was not addressed to people. This is a book addressed to churches. We Christians are not Christians unless we are in churches. By the way, I think it's one of the worst things that many Christians have fallen into is they have accepted a version of Christianity in which the church is optional. They see it as personal faith, their personal declaration. They choose their involvement. And we Orthodox are going to be tempted to fall into that. Uh, we have to, to guard to that. This is written to a testimony for the churches. And that's where we are. That's well, where we get the book. What's that? Is it, isn't the whole Bible? I mean, isn't everything St. Paul wrote to the churches, to the communities, yes. not to individuals? Correct. But the modern Christian, more often than not, imagines, and it's a wrong imagining, it's, it's false, it's not true, that the Bible is written to them. Right? And so they're going to decide, this is what I think it means, that, you know, it's written to the church. When we read this, we're reading this just as an aspect of the church. I don't tell you what, I might tell you what I think. But I don't say it as if the Bible was written to me. Revelation was written to the churches. The whole Bible was. The Old Testament, of course, you didn't have the Christian church. But it was written for the community of the Jews. And we used to understand instinctually that these were sacred texts written for the community. Now, because of individualism, because the way the world operates, people misunderstand. They sit in their corner. They read their Bible. That's how they talk their Bible to see what they think about it. Well, it's not how the Bible works. It was written to the church. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. Again, Old Testament tying up the whole Bible together. The spirit and the bride say come. There's the spirit again. We haven't seen the spirit uh, 
uh, you can't define the, the workings of the Spirit as easily in Revelation uh, as you can God and the, the Lamb or God and Jesus. But there's the Spirit at work. And by the way, the bride, who's the bride? Church. The church. The church. The church. Okay. So the church has always this sort of dual understanding. The church is us, but the church also leads us. The church guides us. The church calls us. And here's the church with the spirit together saying, Come. You notice they both, it's not like they each said it. They say it together. The spirit and the bride say, Come. Let him who hears say, Come. In other words, all of this is the invitation. And once you hear it, it's not just for you to hear it for yourself. You turn around and you invite. This is, a, this is an open invitation where everyone is going to be invited. But him who is thirsty comes. But him who desires to take the water of life without price. You can't earn it. And then you have in verse 18 and 19 this warning. Not to add and not to take away. That's always going to be the, the temptation. As we read the Bible, I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I harp on you and I'll keep harping on you. If I say, what does it mean? I don't want you to think. I want you to read and listen. The answers are always in the text. He who testifies, there's that word again, to these things, says, surely I am coming soon. And there you have the last words of Jesus in the Bible. I am coming soon. Surely I am coming soon. And then John responds, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. He speaks for all of us here. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And John answers for himself and for all of us, Amen. Let it be so. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. And so since that's the ending, that's how God wants us to leave. That's the lingering idea, concept, feeling, impression that he wants us to go with. And as we go back and reread, that's what we, we, we reread it knowing where it ends. Nothing about the end of the world. Amazing, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you can see how misunderstood the Bible is. So much assumption goes into people's understanding of it or misunderstanding. Final thoughts or questions? All right. So we'll take I've got one suggestion so far from Randy. Any other suggestions for... Uh, books to study i don't know father everybody is going to have that part in it well we'll make we'll make sure they have time to get it as drugs okay yeah and if nobody has a copy of the orthodox study bible um i can loan you a copy the church has copies uh if we uh, choose to, I'll, and i'll let you know there's a book that Father, is not in, in a lot of translations. It's, it's part of the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, but not all Bibles have that. So, 
if we choose that, you'll need a Bible that has uh, the, the uh, what they call the Apocrypha. Father, I would love to study Acts. Ah, Acts would be interesting too. Yeah. All right, if anybody has ideas, let me know. Um, what we will do is... Thank you very much. Well, I just want to say thanks to everybody. Um, it was a great experience to uh, have everybody on the team here listening to offering their opinions and suggestions and guidance. So I thought it was a great, great process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so too. I really enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm amazed that we stuck to this thing because this is not an easy thing to read we and understand. It. We got past the it. yucky part, Father. We yeah. made it. We yucky made and it. all. We made it. Yucky oh, and maybe all. Maybe I'll get out now. Thank you for doing it. God bless you all. So we'll start again in February. Watch the bulletin or announcements. We'll take a few weeks off. I'm away the last week of the month. Well, hopefully I can show you a little sunshine. Yes. All right. God bless everybody. Thank you. Bye. Great day. Thank you, Father. No. We think, just uh, let's see, Carolyn. This is are you up first? I think this morning. Let me check my calendar here. Well, oh, noon. All right, very good. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm on a house blessing circuit today. Oh, I got Father, it. Father, Father, can you still hear me?